finally here, starting my service to you as your new senior pastor. First of all, I want to say to you, thank you for calling me, and thank you for entrusting me with this great responsibility. I look forward to many years of our growing together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look forward to many years of our God forming us more and more into the family he's always desired us to be. You know, when the pulpit committee first interviewed me, Matt Jones asked a simple question. This was his question. If you were to become the next senior pastor at Fort Worth Prez, what would your first sermon series be upon? And I quickly said, Ephesians. Now, if you're looking in your bulletin, you're realizing, well, you're not in Ephesians. We're going to get to Ephesians, I promise, starting in January. That's when we're going we're to get there and we're going to make our way through Ephesians. But you see, the more I reflected on Matt's question, the more uh, I realized that the first thing that I need to preach upon is uh, what I believe is the central thing our God has called us to do as a church. And that central thing is corporate worship, what we're doing here this morning. And so today I'm going to begin a series on the centrality of corporate worship. And to get us started, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 to 2. So if you have your Bibles, Romans 12, we'll be reading those first two verses. But before I read, let me pray, asking the Lord that he, that he would bless the reading and proclamation of his word. Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, we pray that through the reading and proclamation of your word that your kingdom would be set up in us more and more. Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, we pray that as we now listen to this word that our ears would be attuned to your voice, for you alone are the good shepherd. And Holy Spirit, eternal breath of the living God, renew us as we sit under this holy word that we, in hearing it, might be shaped more and more in the image of Christ. It's for his sake that we pray. Amen. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or my dear family, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we look at these two verses... I want to spend a little time at the beginning addressing three introductory questions, questions that I hope will help us as we embark upon this new series together. Here's the first question, why a series on corporate worship? I already hinted at it, but now let's go into it a little bit more. Why a series on corporate worship? Well, because our weekly worship is the engine that's to drive everything we do as a church. My desire as your pastor is for corporate worship to be at the very heart of our life and ministry here at Fort Worth Prez. This gathering is to be the primary place, certainly not the only place, but the primary place where God by His Spirit and His Word is at work fulfilling His eternal purpose, 
What is God's eternal purpose? It's forming us more and more into the image of His Son. Which means if we neglect this gathering, then our growth in Christ will be stunted. And our mission for Christ will be stagnant. We won't be. We can't be the church God's called us to be if we take corporate worship lightly. Just as our bodies die without food, so our life and mission together as the church will falter and fade apart from the continual feast of corporate worship. And to this let me add that worship, both individually and corporately, is central to our humanity. As humans, we can't help but worship. And the reason is is because we can't help but love. God formed and fashioned us in His image for love, to be loved and to love. Therefore, love is actually at the heart of worship. God's love for us and our love for Him. To worship God is to love the God who first loved us. And if we were made to love God, then we were made to worship God. And if this was true before the fall of humanity, and it certainly remains true after the fall of humanity, sin has not negated our drive for worship. Rather, it's distorted it. You see, after the fall, humanity didn't cease to be worshipers. Instead, we became false worshipers. We became idolaters, loving anything and everything above God himself. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, for although they knew, they being humanity, although they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. At its most basic, sin is a poor exchange. An exchanging of true worship for false worship. It's exchanging and replacing our first love with lesser loves. And this exchange does nothing less than dehumanize us. Idolatry leaves us less than God created us to be. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. God, through Jesus and by His Spirit, is committed to restoring us into true worshipers so that we might become the true worshipers, the true humans He made and redeemed us to be. But here's the thing. This doesn't come automatically. Rather, by God's grace, worship is something we learn And the primary place where we're to learn to worship holistically in every part and in every way is in corporate worship, where God, by his own initiative, seeks to recapture the worship impulse of our hearts so as to reorient us back to him who alone is our all in all. Seen in this way, Christian corporate worship, as the quote in your bulletin says, is like a gymnasium where God himself trains us in a life of worship so that the entirety of our lives would in turn become a beautiful song of praise to our God. Second introductory question, what is worship? 
Well, at its most basic, worship, biblically speaking, simply means this, service to God by bowing down before Him in humble and grateful adoration. The old English word, worship, from which we get our word worship, means giving God the worth He's due simply because He is God. Worship, then, is a response. It's our loving response to God's glory and grace. Put another way, our worship of God is our response to God's prior invitation to us. An invitation that invites us to participate in nothing less than the very life and love of God Himself. And because this is so, true worship must be, from beginning to end, God-centered rather than me-centered. Worship isn't about performing a style or satisfying particular taste. It isn't about creating a mood or or being popular. It's not entertainment-centered, preacher-centered, or even emotion-centered. Most of all, it is never self-centered. No, worship from beginning to end is about God, and therefore it's to be performed unto God. Which means the real question concerning corporate worship shouldn't be, did the worship service please me today? But rather, did it please God? One writer in speaking about this has said, our hearts yearn for more than a me-centered approach to worship. Prompted by God's own spirit, we long to be taken out of ourselves, even out of our role as judge of judging the worship service. We long to inhabit worship instead of treating it as an object. We long to meet with the one who is the lover of each and every one of us and of the whole church, his bride. In worship, we look to rejoice as God's glory fills the temple. Such a meeting surely takes place at God's initiative and not because of our creative, emotive, or practical interventions. And once we begin to recognize what worship's really about, then we'll begin to see that worship is actually our learning to live out the reality of Paul's words, the words that come right before our passage this morning, when he declares, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. My friends, this is the goal of our gathering of corporate worship week after week, that we would more and more become a people, a community, a family who live the entirety of our lives under this one banner, from him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever. This is the essence and goal of worship, a life lived unto God in all things. Well, there's one last introductory question. How should we proceed with a study on corporate worship? Well, by doing what we always do in worship, by listening to God's Word. God's Word is the source of our worship. It's God's Word that sustains and shapes our worship. Worship is less about being creative and more about being faithful. Faithful to what God's prescribed concerning our weekly gathering. And because this is so, what we're going to be doing over the next several Sundays is considering particular passages that speak to and about worship, about what worship is and how we're to go about it. And the first passage is obviously this one from Romans 12. And in looking at it, I want us to consider three things. 
Three things that this passage teaches us about worship in general. And the first thing I want us to consider is the motivation for worship. Notice here how the Apostle Paul begins this chapter with an urgent appeal to believers in Jesus. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, or better, because of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Simply put, because the holy God has shown us mercy, we're to worship Him. We're to give Him His due worth in response to His wonderful mercy. A mercy that Paul has carefully and beautifully expounded in all the chapters of Romans up to this point. Here's a summary of what he said earlier on in chapters 1 through 11. It's because God has come after us personally in Jesus, even after we rebelled against him, turned away and ran in the opposite direction. God has come after us. And because he has, in his mercy, his undeserved love and forgiveness, we're to worship him. Because he has indeed forgiven us of all our sins and counted us, us, righteous in Christ, we're now to honor him. Because God's brought us from spiritual death into spiritual life, we're to exalt him because we've been given his own spirit who now indwells us. We're to give thanks to him. And because we've been guaranteed a future full of full redemption, we're to magnify him. Our worship of God is never to be done out of mere duty. Now, it is our duty to worship God. But duty can't be our sole motivation. Notice here, Paul doesn't simply command us to worship. Rather, he roots his command to worship in the manifold mercies of God. His mercies that are most seen most clearly and beautifully in Jesus. In Jesus who died for us. Not when we had it all together. At no point did we have it all together. No, he died for us. Willingly and sacrificially while we were still sinners. And therefore, in light of God's Christ-shaped mercies, we're never to relate to worship as simply checking a Christian box. Sunday, worship, done, on to the next thing. Now, this should be our delight in response to what God has done for us. Because we're loved undeservedly, We're now to learn to love God gratefully. And again, the central place where we're learning how to do this is in this gathering, in the context of corporate worship, in this gathering that's possible only because God has shown us his mercy in Christ. For one time, as Paul says in verse 30 of chapter 11, we were disobedient. And in our disobedience, we deserve nothing but God's displeasure. But now we... You have received mercy. Have you received that mercy in Christ? If so, then worship. Praise and honor your God. Do as the psalmist says, come into his presence with joyful noises of praise. And I get for some of us, there'll be noises. But let them be joyful noises to the God who has shown you mercy. Because God's mercy motivates Therefore, when mercy is grasped, or better, when we're grasped by God's mercy, 
The response will be love-filled and truth-filled worship. At the same time, the opposite is true, that when and where our wonder at God's mercy is small, our worship of Him will be stymied. Do you want your worship of God to grow? Do you really want it to grow, to be enriched? Do you long for Fort Worth Presbyterian to be known as a church that worships the one true God? Then bask again and again, day by day, in the mercy God has shown you in Christ. So, the motivation. Secondly, we need to recognize the manner of our worship. And the first thing we're to see in this regard is the bodily nature of worship. In light of God's mercies, we're now to do something. What are we to do? We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Now, we're all probably used to hearing, give your heart to God. Paul says, give your body to God. God wants your body because he wants the whole of who you are, and you're not whole apart from your body. And therefore, when we come to worship, we're to come ready to make an embodied presentation to God in order to say, as the old hymn says, take my life, my whole life, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. My friends, we're to come into worship, into God's presence on the Lord's Day, ready and willing to give Him both our spirituality and our physicality, to give Him all of who we are as embodied human beings. Our worship, then, must include all our senses, the sense of taste and touch, of smelling and hearing and seeing, because our physicality matters to God the Creator. C.S. Lewis put it like this, there's no use trying to be more spiritual than God. Hope you get that, right? No use trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant humanity to be purely to be a purely spiritual creature. That's why He uses material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God doesn't. He invented eating. He likes matter, for He made it. He goes on to say, I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that the body or physical pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. And they are wrong, because God likes your body. That's why He wants it. And one day He'll restore it when Jesus returns. And it's because worship is bodily that worship, our corporate worship, must always be participational. In other words, we're we're never to be passive in worship. Worship is not a spectator sport. It's actually a full contact sport. We're to throw our whole selves into it, listening with our ears, singing and speaking and praying and confessing with our tongues, seeing with our eyes, lifting our hands, even bowing our knees and physically eating and drinking at Christ's table. Worship can never be passive. And when we grasp this, we realize that our questions concerning worship should never be, what did I get out of it? But rather, what did I put into it? Did I give my whole self to God in worship? Did I present my whole self as a living sacrifice, as one who's been brought from death to life, as one whose life is now marked with the cross of Christ? Only this kind of worship, says Paul, is holy and acceptable to God. It pleases God for us to offer our bodies to Him, to come in the manner of laying 
all of who we are and all that we have at his feet and saying with Jesus himself, not my will, but your will be done. But not only is the manner of our worship to be bodily, it's also, notice what Paul says, it's to be mindful. In other words, worship is to be done thoughtfully. Now, interestingly, the word Paul uses for spiritual worship can also be translated as reasonable or logical. This is your logical or reasonable worship. For the spiritual is never opposed to the intellectual, to the use of our intellect in worship. Because just as God wants your body, He also wants your mind. They go together. Therefore, when we gather for worship, we need to come ready to think, to ponder, to contemplate, to think through what we say and sing together. We must come ready to ponder what's said from this pulpit, what's actually taking place when we come to this table. Because you see, one of the dangers is that our worship can become rote and even feel meaningless. It can be simply a going through the motions of another Sunday. But the way Paul wants us to counter this is for us to start thinking as ones who've been given a renewed mind. And therefore, in worship, what we have to do is we have to learn to put our minds where our mouth is. Put our minds where our mouth is. What do I mean by that? Well, this morning, we've said a lot of words, haven't we? We've confessed things. We've confessed our faith. We've confessed our sins. We've sung songs of praise. Do you really know what you're singing and what you're saying? And do you really mean it? Because we've just said it. Do we really mean it? We're putting our mind, putting our mind where our mouth is so that these things become more and more a part of who we are. I really mean what I'm singing and what I'm saying. Am I committed to examining what's been said in the sermon? For for going to worship truly, we need to worship mindfully. Our minds must be engaged thoroughly and thoughtfully, for this is what God wants. And therefore, in light of His mercies, it must be what we want as well. So let me ask you, is your worship mindful or mindless? So there's the motivation, there's the manner, and then finally, the result of worship. What's the result? Paul says it's two things, transformation and discernment. In verse 2, he warns his readers of an ever-present danger, and it's the danger of confirmation, of being squeezed and pressured into the world's way of thinking and doing things. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world reason? Because you've been rescued. You've been rescued from sin and death. You're no longer to take your cues from the world's mindset, which is a mindset that's always opposed to God the Creator. And the remedy for confirmation is transformation. Transformation that, again, he puts in the context of worship. And notice, again, the emphasis is on the mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that as you offer yourselves to God bodily and thoughtfully, we can actually trust that the one who's ultimately at work is the Spirit of God himself. The Spirit of God is at work when we worship. Yes, we come and we offer our bodies We do so thoughtfully, but it's all in reliance upon the Spirit who is always at work for our good. 
We're trusting that it's the Spirit who's at work transforming our thinking so that our thinking comes more and more into line with God's way of thinking. A transformed way of thinking that in turn leads to a transformed way of living. And that's why Paul goes on to add at the end of verse 2 that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the word for testing means to discover. That you may actually discover God's will. You see, knowing God's will doesn't come through hunches or through dreams or even through feelings. No, it comes through getting our renewed minds that are being further renewed on the word of God in worship. So we might learn to think rightly, to think gospelly in every area of our lives. For the offering of our bodies and the renewal of our minds in worship is to lead to our discovering and working out God's will in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces so that we might live worship-filled lives both publicly and privately. For again, here's my contention. We won't be, we can't be, the people God's called us to be as a church or as individuals if we aren't committed to worship on the Lord's day. And therefore, if we're going to to be a church, the church God's called us to be, we mustn't, as the writer of Hebrews says, we mustn't neglect this gathering, as is the habit of some, as the writer says. So let me ask you, do you have a habit of worship? A habit that flows out of God's mercies to you in Christ? Or is your habit one of taking worship lightly or even negligently? My brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let me appeal to you based on Paul's own appeal that by God's marvelous mercies that you would commit yourself afresh to God's call to come and worship. In response to his Jesus-shaped mercy, let us commit to be here week after week. Let us commit to come prepared prepared to offer our bodies and minds to God so that by His grace we might be transformed and slowly but surely discover His wonderful will that is truly good, truly beautiful, and truly right. Let us pray. Our great God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have made Yourself known in Your Word. We thank you that you have shown us mercy and you declare that mercy to us in your word and how it is seen most clearly in your son who willingly and humbly laid down his life for us that we might find our life in his life, that we might know the forgiveness that he has accomplished. Thank you that you've given us your spirit and thank you For the great privilege that you, the high king of heaven, call us week after week to come into your presence, to be renewed in your mercies, and to proclaim your praise. Amen.